So this is Bernard Baruch with Intuit Econ. Uh, and we also have Rishi and Ari here uh, helping us out and being part of this leadership team that's growing and I think is positioning, uh, positioning us to be a, um, a very material force in, in this world of investing and trying to think more rationally uh, about how to navigate markets. I'm incredibly excited about our speed of growth and the traction that we're getting. Um, so I, I just wanna personally thank you both um, because without you guys, this would not be happening um, at anything close to the rate uh, that we're moving at. So uh, thank you um, for being part of this. It's also way more fun. Uh, thank you for having us. So one of the things I'm gonna do right off the bat to showcase here is Rishi put together this really cool teaser and I got it all ready to go to share. I just, I can't help myself. Um, so we're gonna, we're gonna watch that. Uh, let's see, how do I, I think I wanna share the audio. Um, let's see if I can do this. Uh, audio, select the microphone. All right, I'll just try to play this and see if it works. Um, share sound. Okay, let's see if this works. Am I screen sharing right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah we can see clearly. Cool. Yeah, this thing's so cool, man. In terms of uh, this tug of war, I think a similar sort of psychology is playing out there too. I anytime you're talking about assets that are growing and changing and improving so rapidly. Um, and we're listening to the earnings calls. We're following the progression. News comes out about genomics every few weeks now. And then this sends like uh, prices on some of these current, uh, these stocks like Intellia, like way up, right? I it's, like, it's not even really cool with all these graphics. Like, we discovered CRISPR-Cas9 and you know the Nobel Prize winners of 2020 um, in, in biology, we're in the space for, for essentially leveraging CRISPR-Cas9 to edit genes, right? We already know the technology works. So when there are, quote, breakthroughs where we show that it works, it's like, that's not really news, but the market's reacting to it. That's part of the reason why, at least me personally, I have a high degree of conviction in that space. Come on, so are you supposed to raise the roof? This powerful wave of technology proving itself out the question really is like well okay so i want to own this i want to be in this for maybe 10 years or more um because the 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 market caps are so low relative to the value so then well when do you want to buy it well you want to buy it when the price is depressed and it's really really hard to know when price is depressed it's like how do you put a value on a company like Invitae or CRISPR? I don't think you can actually value a company like that. It's impossible. So the only thing you can really go off of is sentiment. And this was just like the most beautiful gift of, of like uh, the, the headlines of Kathy Wood being a fraud, you know, and, and, and like this is like some huge bubble 
that just like imploded and it's going to be miserable for years. This is like the dot-com bubble, you know, this is like, that's like the perfect narrative to get um, these securities at cheap prices. So I, I, I have a hard time. I mean, I feel free to react to that and tell me why you might may think that I'm wrong. Um, but I don't think that you could have gotten much more depressed psychology in the market than you did in late May. Okay, so. Um, yeah, I really like that snippet. It kind of just summarized basically what the thesis was all about in terms of Kathy Woods and the in disruptive innovation stocks that we're looking into. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Uh, I also think that the dynamic switching over to, to speaking with you guys and, and getting thoughts from our brain trust and subscribers, like our last discussion, um, our, our uh, happy hour, team building, whatever you want to call it on Thursday, that actually went, ended up going on for three hours. Mm -hmm. um, and, and being able to bring people into that discussion, as long as they're the right kind of people, very curious, thoughtful people, um, then I think that that's, that's going to be a winning strategy. So there are a lot of things that we want to discuss. Um, uh, we put on a short strategy, uh, subject to change. Um, our, our, our shorts tend to be more short term. So I would expect that a lot of this is going to uh, be changing over time um as we learn more and kind of get a better feel for how we want to position ourselves um i should also point out that when, when, when we're talking about this short position uh and i can share my screen here um to to showcase some of this um let's see we're trying to offset a a leveraged exposure uh, so now I would say we're essentially um, maybe net a hundred percent of the market, meaning that you know our expected beta on any given day would be about one. And you know that's typical of of people that say buy the S and P five hundred, and then don't really pay much attention to it. But we were actually looking at a beta of maybe closer to one point three before. Thursday and Friday. Uh, so why why change that? Well, one, anytime you're taking a leverage position, I mean that's a that's a strong position. Like, you know, you really gotta feel highly confident in the market to take any kind of leverage position. Because I, I see a lot of folks are sitting there on cash a lot of the time, saying that they don't even want 100 exposure to the market. So so a lot of the timing of the short positions actually just scaling back um this high beta and wanting to get more defensive by having something to offset that so but i'm happy to talk through some of these facts on shorting some of these these examples that we have here um you know really answer any questions you guys had as reading through that i know it's kind of a long post but frankly shorting is really hard <laughs> so if you're going to write something about it it better have a lot of detail otherwise you're probably not completely in control of what you're doing. Yeah, I really enjoyed reading that article actually in the mental models that you came up with for 
determining what a good short position is, like the the cost of bar borrowing. It would be cool if you could get a little more into that and like pinpoint what exactly you have to look for when when picking a short position. Sure. Well, there's some basic stuff here about cost to borrow, uh, dividends, tax consequences, leverage expense. Um, so one is is this cost of borrowing. So some securities um, actually charge, they charge money for that because they're hard to borrow. So I could have also called that hard to borrow. Um, and generally these securities are gonna be ones that are more illiquid anyway. And these aren't securities that we wanna be shorting in the first place. So that's typically not an issue for us. Another one is that if you're shorting a position that pays a dividend, um, you're actually paying that dividend. So it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you wanna avoid any and all securities that pay dividends because a lot of them do, but just know that you're paying that dividend. Um, tax consequences. Uh, I'd say like, you know, if you're, if you're doing some shorts to offset your longs and you're wrong about your shorts, then the fact that you can realize those losses um, is I think a, a benefit to shorting because you know most folks, if they're worried about the market, they might sell their stock. Well, if you're worried, it probably means that your stocks went up. Um, well, then you're realizing your taxable gains. But another way to try to exercise or, or, or show that um, that concern would be to hedge your market risk by putting on a short position. Well, now you didn't have to realize those longs in order for you to try to be more defensive. Um, and then I think the last one here was on leverage expense. So if you aren't careful, uh, you can actually be paying your broker um, some kind of interest expense for your short positions. And you generally just don't want to do that because these broker, you know, these brokerages will charge maybe 7% annualized. Wow. And it's really hard. It's, it's already really hard to make money shorting. So why would you do that? So making sure that you have enough cash on hand to cover the notional value of your shorts effectively means that you're not borrowing money from your broker, like E-Trade or whatever. So those are basics. And you got to know those basics before you can even start to structure a short strategy. Uh, but before I get into that, I'm happy to answer any questions you have. Um, I think that, well, first of all, I, I agree with Rishi. It was a great, it was a great read um, because as a retail investor, which is what I think of myself as, I haven't been managing my own portfolio for that long. Um, and on top of that, I, I barely even knew what a short was. So as this entire, this whole Robin Hood phenomenon is grown and you've done a ton of articles um, on people buying options and, and just it, it, what it's what this has become as far as for retail investors and how much they've delved into tr trading, so to speak. Um, I think it's certainly not spelled out by these brokerages what it costs to short and and what it you know what it entails. And somebody like myself who has short over the past year, frankly, I it's not clear to me at all what I paid when I when I took those positions um and not only that but I, I i think i got killed in most of them um and so i think it's really important that other retail investors pay attention 
to pretty much everything you, you read. I'm going to read this five more times just because um, I just think about the amount of money that the brokers are making from from people trying to short. And obviously, as you as you said, shorting is is certainly more difficult because markets naturally want to go up. Um, but I think it's a really integral part of a retail investor, you know, becoming a more a better investor, so to speak, and, and a better you know positioner and allocator of their portfolio. Because I, I copied a couple, I don't want to say copy, but I, I took a bunch of your ideas um, into my own portfolio over the past, I don't know, six months as far as shorting. And I always was the most nervous about shorting. Um, and like I said, I don't think I ever made money doing it. Well, you should be nervous about shorting. You should be incredibly nervous about shorting. Um, there are good reasons for why most investors don't go short. Not only is it complicated and kind of counterintuitive, but you know, for the for for a lot of security, I won't say most because most securities are actually bonds, and bonds are naturally negative skew. But but you know, people tend to think when when you listen to somebody talk about shorting, they're usually at a party talking about a stock, and it's usually a stock that's very interesting. And if it's interesting, that it probably has positive skew, if only because you know, you know, it, it's more speculative. Right. People don't tend to sit around at parties if they're like talking to investors and guys trying to figure out, you know, who's better than the other one and smarter or whatever. They're not usually talking about really boring companies like General Motors or Exxon. You know, they're going to be talking about something like Tesla and how they think Elon Musk is an idiot. Right. But the yeah. fundamental characteristics of of stocks play a huge role in determining whether or not this is a company that has positive skew. Is this the kind of company that could, at least in theory, if you're wrong, go up 10 times in a year? And if you're producing a commodity, you probably aren't, right? It's just, you know, boring. Like most companies are boring. Most businesses suck. Most businesses are producing highly commoditized goods and services, and you're basically just trying to eke out some kind of decent margin so you can make a living. That's most companies. So most companies actually do fit that sort of, um, you know, the picture they, that we drew out in that article, they'll fit that picture of a company that probably can't run up a whole lot really fast in price, but if something goes wrong, it can go down. Um, and so, you know, I think that that's like, that's like deeply understanding the skew of a company it's really important, but even more importantly, looking at the overall strategy, like looking at the shorts as part of a portfolio. Um, that's probably another thing that we do that I think most folks don't do when they think about shorts. They may put on like stop loss limits on an individual company, and that's just really dumb. Um, but before I jump into that, maybe I should pause for a second because there's a lot of material to cover. So I, I remember you shorted LQD and one of the holdings was Apple. So Apple is actually one of those companies that has a massive cash reserve, actually the largest cash reserve out of all the companies in the world. And it has a significant moat based on its um, highly innovative products and its research and innovation into medicine tech. So why did you choose to go short on like this security if it's holding a great company like apple yeah that's a great question so 
Um, there are multiple risks to a bond, like a corporate bond. So there's a credit risk component to it. But then more importantly, in our view, there's duration risk or sensitivity to interest rates, which is very sensitive to inflation. So um, like when, when bonds started tanking in the beginning of the year, they weren't doing that because people were perceiving Apple as being a higher credit risk. It was because very small changes in expectations for inflation over the next 10, 15 years can have very material impacts on the value of bonds, even if the perception of credit risk didn't change at all. So with corporate bonds, you have, you have a, especially like a perceived as a low risk or investment grade corporate bonds, you really have almost the perfect shortable security because almost anything can happen that will make the price go down. So if we're wrong about inflation, inflation gets out of control, then this would suffer. If there's perceived higher risk associated with these companies because the economy slows down, then these securities would suffer. Um, you know, you're not talking about a risk-free interest uh, instrument in terms of credit because there are a lot of securities in there that are not Apple. I mean, you picked like the one probably best lowest lowest credit risk security in the entire basket, but like half of it is securities of companies that. Um, if we had been using, say, underwriting standards from a decade ago, they would have been considered high yield junk bonds because of how leveraged they are, because they've extended the maturities out and they've cut the covenants. And there's very little to protect these bondholders in here anymore. Right. And they're like buying back stock and, you know, basically pumping up their leverage like crazy. So, like, what's left if the company starts to fail? Um, so, it's also a highly diversified instrument. Uh, that doesn't move around very quickly. That's, that's what you want in a short strategy. You want a basket. You want a well-diversified basket of negative skew crap that if you're wrong, you won't lose very much. But if you're right, you can do very well and hedge the risk in your long side of the portfolio. It's also highly liquid. That's why it's LQD liquid. It's this liquid ticker. So the cost of going in and out of the security is extremely low. That's, that's another thing you definitely want. You do not want to be in any kind of security that's highly illiquid because that means there's not a lot of trading volume. It means that if you're wrong, you're going to end up paying up big time for it, even more than like the mid of the bid ask spread. You suggested a market cap of that's not lower than Billion, right? I mean, I use 10 billion, but frankly, this is a really weak. I mean, you need multiple risk management tools before you start touching on shorting. So I can I can hit on a few of these. So um, let's see. Um, what did I say? Diversification, uh, stop loss limits. Yeah, uh, I would say that that's that's a really good rule of thumb but by itself is almost meaningless because like Tesla was at 30 billion when, when we bought it, you know, so you can have securities that are very positive skew and can move quickly, even if they're bigger. But when you're talking about securities that are under a billion dollar market cap, 
I mean, you're just asking for trouble. I mean, even if it seems like it's a really boring industry, like, uh, you know, let's say you're just a car manufacturer and you're really small compared to Ford. But then all of a sudden the CEO comes out and says they're going to build EVs and everybody thinks that like, oh my God, an RC car that can actually carry people, that clearly means that the company should be valued at 10 times what it was before, even if they don't have any cars coming out for 2025. So all of a sudden the market cap is like exploding. You know, I mean, you can get acquired too. Like it's so much easier to acquire a company that has a billion dollar market cap than 10 billion. Shit, you don't want to be holding that security. Whatever, whatever limits you had on risk don't matter if after hours the company is getting bought out by somebody else at 40% higher than the last, you know, closing market price. So you're basically fucked. Yeah, because the acquired company would go up, I imagine. Oh yeah. Well, it's gonna go right up to whatever the acquired price of the company is. So owning, so shorting securities that have small market caps, um, which I had to kick somebody out of the brain trust once because they kept like, they kept talking about how they were shorting all these little tiny securities and they were just so obsessed about how they're going to get screwed. And I think one of them was AMC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, oh, was, no. <laughs> this was before AMC got killed that I kicked him out because he just like, he, re- he refused to listen. Like it wasn't that, it wasn't that we disagreed. It was that there was a failure of an ability to have a conversation or show any sort of recognition that you're learning something new that you didn't acknowledge. And it was like a discussion about the possibility that, well, what if they don't go bankrupt? What if they are acquired? Mm-hmm. Like, I think, it, I don't remember the market cap, but it was really tiny before they started to turn things around. And they have a lot of, you know, they have a reach. People know about AMC. So what would happen if, you know, uh, Amazon or, or one of these companies that's trying to get into streaming content decided, I'm just going to buy this because frankly, I've got tens of billions of dollars on my balance sheet. And I'm going to, basically, I'm going to buy a free, almost free call option that people are going to go back and actually want to see movies, you know, in the movie theater. And then we're going to have the ability to basically market our own stuff more. You just can't, these, these small stocks, be really careful with these small stocks. If you want to short small stock, small stocks, then, you know, use an ETF. Like if you have a view that really small cap stocks are, are, uh, you know, somehow overvalued and you have some strong thesis about that, use an ETF and make sure you got like, hundreds of them in there. That touches on your point about diversification to mitigate the risk. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, that's way, that's more important on the short side than even, than on the long side. Um, I feel, I mean, it's important on the long side too, but we've got, we have some really concentrated positions on the long side, putting 10% of your company into or 10% of your portfolio in one company, that's enormous, you know? So, but, uh, but you're not gonna lose your whole portfolio by putting 10% of your net worth in one company. You can definitely lose your entire portfolio by putting 10% of your nav shorting a company like some small cap stock like AMC. 
or GameStop. I mean, that's obvious now, but we were tweeting about the stuff before all that shit blew up. Like you can lose all of your savings very quickly, putting a big short position on something that can explode higher. You're done. You just get wiped out. Vishal, Vishal has a good question. Um, how do you determine when to, uh, when to use put options versus when to short directly? A uh, really good question. So part of this would hinge on the, um, uh, the actual market for options on the security. And I, I think I may have forgotten to say at the outset, nothing that we say or write is investing advice. Luckily, we have this plastered all over in tweetycon.com. But um, so the, the liquidity of an options market can differ materially from the liquidity of the underlying. But typically, the options market is going to be less liquid because options markets tend to be less traded. That actually wasn't true during the pandemic. During the pandemic, a lot of these call option markets had higher trading volumes than the underlying, which is part of the call option bubble thesis. That was insane. So if it's highly liquid, then that's great. Then it becomes a question of implied volatility. Okay, so you're buying an option. Well, what are you paying for that option? Um, a big driver of the option, especially if they're longer dated, which is what we do now. We just, I don't know, it, it just feels right it's easier to manage the risk. Um, we just want to increase exposure and things. So that's a good way to go. So look at the implied volatility and compare the implied volatility to the actual historical volatility. And very importantly, think about how could the actual volatility change compared to the historical volatility? This is a big reason why we were shorting LQD going into the pandemic. Because basically these bonds people just viewed these bonds as being extremely boring. And the historical volatility was like nothing compared to stocks. And then they absolutely got clobbered. That's why we did so well initially during the pandemic was we had a bunch of different short positions, but I think around half the returns that we made from the initial crash came because we had a you know, relatively small put option position on LQD, but the volatility exploded that's what you're getting paid for initially on these options is the increase in the volatility. All of a sudden, the, whoever sold you those options, they start to rethink the range of possibilities of what could possibly happen. How much money can they actually lose from this security? That's what that implied volatility increase means is an oh fuck moment. I had no idea that could happen. And that's when you wanna own options. Yeah, I really like your um, your longer term option. I, I've spoken to you, option idea. I've spoken to you about that a few different times because I, I mean, my biggest issue is even some of the shorts that I, I um, after listening to you, decided on my own um, to put myself into. Um, I I really didn't have I just, and I, I probably a lot of people have the same problem as me. It's just hard to see um, in the short term them go against you like those positions even if you have conviction if you're not like a real pro um so that's why i found myself at least um closing some of those shorts versus the the i don't know the options you can still see them go against you but you just know that there's obviously a lot that can happen if they're long dated um and then the 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 reward if, if you're able to stick with them is obviously for the most part uh going to be higher 
Does that make yeah, sense? you can make a lot more money. Like theoretically, you can make a lot more money using a put option. The problem is that five out of six put options expire out of the money. Like if you're going to pick just some random selection of, of an option, calls or puts, like you're generally going to lose money. Why? Because you're trading in the insurance market and the, your counterparties are not generally idiots. Your counterparties are generally financial institutions that take money right off the bat for selling you the contract and are basically playing an insurance game. So you're betting that a house is going to catch on fire. Well, usually houses don't catch on fire. So, you know, that's not really the main reason why, like, I, I wouldn't say that we, you know, like buying put options. Like, it's like you, you generally don't want to be just buying out insurance on things unless it is your actual house, right? So, you know, buying put options is, I mean, you really got to be good at it. Like, you really have to feel like you're, I think, you have a really strong thesis. So COVID was a good example because uh, like the timing of it was clear. Like you could look at the rate of growth going on in China, like the early statistics coming out. So that was one where I felt like, you know, you could have a lot more confidence in the timing. It's really, really hard to time events. Generally things aren't like an exponentially increasing growth rate of a virus. You know, usually the, the kinds of risks that we're talking about are extremely challenging to time. Um, and what's driving the security isn't even the risk that you're looking at. Like in this case, we're talking about, you know, oil, peak oil demand, uh, the transportation disruption thesis, um, some brick and mortar companies. Well, these things take years to play out. So why are you buying put options? What, you think that all this shit's gonna happen tomorrow? Like it's not, it's gonna take a long time. So, so that's where I feel like the, the short strategy can be beneficial because you're, you're essentially in the short term, you're using it to mitigate market risk as opposed to selling securities and exercising a capital gain. Um, but in the long term, if the shit does hit the fan, you're gonna be really glad that you had some of that right? Because correlations go to one and it doesn't really matter what you shorted. You just want to be glad you were shorting something because when the market tanks, the market tanks. Uh, maybe we should talk about your oil short before we move on or? Yeah, sure. Um, structure this. So let me see if there's anything really important here. So we talked about the strategy, individual security rules. Um, I think one of the things I want to touch on before we jump into the some of the specifics is strategy loss limits. So I don't, I'm not aware of anybody else that does things quite like Intuit Econ. Um, but the the thinking behind this is that what you really care about is the performance of a thesis or a broad strategy. It's not about the individual securities, unless that individual security is a broad basket like LQD. LQD by itself is, uh, I would say like, this is a diversified ETF, highly liquid, that by itself, you know, constructing a short strategy makes perfect sense. But in our case, we've got a bunch of securities um, and we don't have loss limits on any one of those securities. We have a loss limit 
um, broadly for the whole strategy. And, but that's also a loss limit that we're not monitoring every five seconds. It's really like, okay, what if we lose 5% against the notional value of this um, by the close on Friday, any given week? And if that were to happen, then we may start to question the, whether or not this strategy is good. And you know, we might scale back that position by some percentage, like cut, cut it down by half, right? Because by the time we actually get to Friday, we might actually be down 7%, for example. Um, but this, this is one way you can avoid uh, like a stop loss. A stop loss will trigger if at any point during the day, on any trading day, the price reaches a certain point. Well, assets move around a lot. So you're basically like, unless you're just really lucky, you're almost guaranteed to screw this thing up because you know it's going to move against you at some point. That's what'll happen. You know, prices bounce around. Well, you don't want to like, you know, buy high, sell low, and that's kind of what these stop loss orders do effectively. Plus the algos tend to hunt those. Sorry. Uh, plus what I've seen or and also experienced is the algos tend to hunt those stop losses too. I don't know about that. I think that that's a, I think that that's like investors that are, you know, you'll see people writing about this stuff, but I haven't seen any real evidence to support that. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like, I feel like there's a bunch of investors that are influential that write blog posts about that because they're trying to basically explain away their losses and come up with some theory that blames the man. The, the explanation, the good explanations that I've seen, uh, I, I think you might, you probably follow Mr. Anderson, um, True Crypto. He's really good. He's, he's one of the better Twitter accounts. He's a real pro. And like what he says is um, uh, on this, with this particular subject is like, it's going to be really obvious if people are going, you know, long, especially traders in a certain area where their stops are going to be. So you like the pros aren't in the obvious places, I guess, which makes some sense. Because if you, you know, let's say there's like four touches, you know, if you want to talk technical trading, there's four touches to an area and people would put their, you know, their stop loss right below that or something. So I think, I mean, my opinion is there's some truth to it. In crypto, I definitely think there's some truth to it. Okay. All right. Crypto is different. Look at Coinbase. I mean, they're showing you the order book. Yeah. Right. But generally you don't see the order book in public markets for like, say, stock. Right. right. And you don't see the whole order book, even if you're a broker dealer. And the reason why is because there's like 20 different exchanges and there's a bunch of dark pools too. And you don't actually know the whole order book, like nobody does. But there's so many differences. Like if you look at the actual difference between like the price of Ethereum and Coinbase versus Kraken versus Bitfinex and blah, blah, blah. Like there are material changes, like 1%, like a lot. Yeah. So, so you don't actually, it's not nearly as efficient within crypto. So all you need to know is, look, there's a big fat order to buy or sell on Coinbase and there it is. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely think it's happening in crypto. I just don't think it's happening with like Tesla. So how do you organize these strategy loss limits? Cause you seem to divide your shorts on different categories like internal combustion engines and oil companies. Etc. So, like, do you have a different percentage for each category, or like, how, how would you organize? 
these limits? Really good question. Um, right now, we're looking at it all as, as really just one strategy. And maybe we shouldn't. Part of that is to keep it simple. I We already have a pretty complex portfolio. Um, so part of this is like, you don't want to over, overwhelm yourself with complexity uh, and miss the forest for the trees. The, the, the key question I would ask myself is, well, do I actually know what I'm doing? Because um, if I'm wrong about the timing of like, you know, Oracle and IBM, um, but I happen to be right about oil and then on transportation, it's mixed, but basically on net, I'm just riding the market. I probably am wrong. And so I'm not going to play games with myself and go, oh, well, uh, I was wrong about those, but this other strategy that I had, that's working out. And it's like, ah, there's so much uncertainty. I'm probably just wrong and spitting in the wind. So it's pretty simple. It's like, if I, if I'm losing 5% generally across these shorted stocks, um, that's about where I'd feel like the limit is of, I feel like that's likely that I would lose 5% against mm -hmm. those. Um, and so I'm expecting that that would happen before I start to make money on some of these. Um, it's really a timing of a value trade. These stocks generally have done well in 2021. And so as we're heading into this rotation, um, I'm expecting this rotation. Um, I'm expecting rates to actually rise some and then have value be the one that gets kicked instead of growth. And that that's actually what's gonna start to set off the second tech bubble because that's what's gonna kill the narrative. We did an article a month ago about how narratives die. Like that's, that's gonna be the kick in the pants because nobody's expecting that. They all think that somehow people are only investing in genomics if the 10 years below 1.5% and they don't care. So once that's confirmed, then a lot of the money that's been chasing after value starts to move into chasing after whatever they think is going to go next because we still have tons of retail pushing prices and sentiment, right? So they're just going to chase after whatever is going to be the next trend. And this whole value rotation is pretty long in the teeth. And the valuations on these things are incredibly stretched. Um, it doesn't look good. Like I wouldn't invest in the S&P right now. All right, where were we? Um, do you want to talk about some of these particular stocks? I thought that the, the analysis on, on stocks in particular and the distribution of those returns was, was, was interesting and helpful. Um, did you guys see that? Any comments on that or? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you're talking about uh, versus the Russell? Uh, yeah, versus the Russell. There was another one inside that study as well. Um, but yeah, generally, um, so generally stocks go up, but a lot of the returns for an index are really coming from like a handful of companies. And then if you're looking within like at least relative performance within the index though, most companies are, are underperforming this index because of that, right? So basically, if you're investing long, you better hope you have some of these big winners because they're the ones pulling you ahead. And that's why stock picking is so hard because most stocks are going to underperform the index. 
that's the that's the key takeaway there. And we we actually did some analysis to expand that even beyond the study that was done um, across more baskets of securities, uh, longer time horizon, basically found the same thing. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, so there's a lot of, there are a lot of securities in this short portfolio. Um, and this thing, this is subject to change. Uh, so I don't know if we're going to get through all of them. And, and frankly, we're going to do a lot more analysis and provide detailed comments on these stocks in upcoming articles. Those will initially be published for subscribers only, but then move to the public blog. Probably like DeFi tech, you know, I'll wait till our subscribers make a whole lot of money on those and then move it to the public blog. <laughs> or we'll lose it. Well, let me tell you that my my uh, my buddy, who's um, who took that trade as well, he's thrilled. Um, yeah. My buddy, my buddy Jared, that you spoke to, I think you talked to him one time, or maybe I don't know. He's he's in our Slack group. Okay, he's, cool. He text he texts me all the time. How happy is with DeFi so far? Well, start, part of that was market timing, uh, of of crypto generally. So it doesn't necessarily mean that DeFi tech is going to be so amazing and that we're right about our thesis. And we actually had some, some bear cases in that same thesis too. Um, so they're, they're, they're naturally like a high, they have more sensitivity to crypto than crypto. Uh, so, so that was part of the reason for the timing of it. Um, their actual thesis has yet to play out. Um, but um, I, I'll, I'll put it this way. If anybody that's, that's watching wants to ask me about a particular short position, or if you guys have a question, then feel free to ask. I think I had the actual weights of those. Um, here, I can share. I was going to say, maybe touch on like the, maybe the two, top two or three. Okay. Well, Oracle, hey, Rishi, while I, while I put some of my thoughts together, do you want to share what I was telling you earlier about Oracle? Or let me know if you're not comfortable with that. That's totally fine. I can, I can jump in here. I just want to try to get my thoughts straight. Essentially, you pointed out that Oracle spent a lot of their disposable income on buying back securities and give, handing out dividends instead of innovating. So that's one of the reasons why you included them in your short list. So that's the gist of what I got. Uh, pretty typical. Um, it, it fits into that narrative that Kathy Woods brings out about a lot of these companies in S&P that are looking to please short-term minded investors instead of actually investing in innovation. So I figured that you chose to short Oracle because they're not, they're kind of falling in line with that whole idea of failing to, Dis, uh, invest in more disruptive tech and new tech. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Very so, interesting considering that Oracle is like one of those companies that people usually associate with tech, quote unquote, but they're failing to innovate. Yeah, well, they're also a $250 billion company. 
And so, um, you know, what is tech? Uh, that's another thing that we were just talking about a little bit ago. Um, I don't necessarily consider Oracle to be tech, um, but I also don't think that the term tech really means it. It's like, you know, internal combustion engines were tech a hundred years ago. I mean, are we just going to consider anything that's built with software to be tech now? Because if that's the case, then then target target is tech. Target's big tech. They're using machine learning algorithms to help uh, figure out how to stock their shelves appropriately. You know, you can buy uh, goods from from Target and then come pick them up now because they figured out that they can sell stuff on a, on a website five years ago. Um, so is that tech? Uh, I think that what, what matters with tech is whether or not you have, um, the way I would think about uh, tech, at least in the, in the context of leveraging technology to create positive skew, is that you're providing some kind of service that is not easily commoditized that you can scale at near zero cost. Well, they're doing really well right now and through the pandemic because they provide uh, cloud solutions. And basically all these cloud providers um, are uh, benefiting from the move where just businesses generally had to move to the cloud. It was a way to cut costs. Basically Stanley Druckenmiller was right. Um, his plays on Amazon and Microsoft those have been his top two holdings for like well over a year. It could be multiple years. Um, and he says we're maybe in the seventh inning of that move. But you look at Oracle and they're moving into this space more. We're also shorting IBM. You know, they're hinging a lot of their ability to maintain. Again, you, did you see that price chart? I mean, they, 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 they shot up a ton. Like relative to the past several years, they've just been rocketing higher. Um, but for them to, to actually maintain that and justify that, they're going to have to beat Microsoft and Amazon and Google and also like dozens of small companies that are competing to move into this cloud space that I think is likely to become highly commoditized and probably won't have very wide margins. Um, so is that tech? I don't know. I guess it just depends on how you define tech, but they are a $250 billion company. So I'm not really worried about them becoming like a $500 billion company in the next six months. Could happen. Um, James Sullivan asks, um, so since it appears that you're slightly bearish on the S and P, um, do you think that the success of passing investing will halt? Uh, that's a really good question. So passive investing is, is always going to win over active investing. Mathematically, that's just, that's just a fact. And the reason why is because if you're actively investing, you're trading with other active investors. So after expenses, active investors are always going to lose to passive investors. 
Um, so it, it, it's, it's, you know, if, if you're passive and you're just broadly owning everything, then you're going to make the returns of everything on average, right? Um, so I don't know if, like, you're never going to get to a point where hedge funds, well, I guess you could, you could get to a point if like all the hedge funds just so happen to be investing in like a, a, the same small basket of securities that outperform, then that's fine. But generally when you're talking about like hedge funds and these active investors, they all have different investing strategies. And on net, they're not necessarily that different than what, you know, broad investors are just doing with their ETFs and buying and holding. So, yeah, I think it really just the context of the timing on that question really is, is the key to getting the right answer. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I would say just keep it. This is another one of these terms that people, people use these terms like active versus passive investor. But if you're truly thinking about the theoretical um, implications of what those terms mean, it means that active investors are trading with each other. And so it's essentially a zero sum game. Um, so yeah, I don't, I, it depends on what you're active in, I guess. But I do think that the, there, there, there are reasons to be concerned about just not thinking about investing. I think that that's one of the big challenges right now that's gonna face more and more buy and hold investing strategies because you like you look at these target retirement funds as an example so a typical target retirement fund will have like an enormous let's say you're like five years out from retirement you might have half of that in a broad basket of everything that touches on like treasury and corporate bonds and then the other half is going to be like some enormous uh, enormous position like the s p 500. well we think that bonds are in a bubble so those are in trouble and then the S&P 500 is basically the 500 most expensive companies in the United States. And the United States has 50% of the world's stock market capitalization, only 24% of the world's GDP, 4% of the world's population, and is essentially in a, in a state of being a declining power um, for reasons that, you know, if, if you haven't been paying attention, we're just not necessarily operating at the level that we did, say, after World War II in terms of social cohesion. We don't necessarily deserve to have 65% of the world's reserve currencies invested in the US dollar. So why, so why would you want that? And, and why, if you're getting closer to retirement, would you possibly want to have more of these extremely risky bonds that give you basically nothing and expose you to all these risks? Like that's not, you're not de-risking by buying closer and closer to your actual retirement date for these target funds. But the belief that you can mechanize investing, that's the danger. You can't, there, there are no like fixed, there are like a few basic principles of investing that are never gonna change, like diversity, diversify. But you can't just mechanistically build out a reasonable portfolio and assume that that strategy is going to work forever. Because if that's the case, then so many people are going to do it that they're going to bid up the price of those securities to a point that they're, they become extremely risky and eventually implode. That's what's going on with bonds. There's this been this 40 year buildup and perception that bonds are low risk. 
And that's why the prices of bonds keep going up to the point that they're insane. Same thing happened with mortgage-backed securities. Same thing happened with sovereign debt in 2011. It's like tale as old as time. So yeah, be very fearful of things that people tell you are safe. Good question. It's a great question. What are some other thoughts? We may not even get to the other article. It's a good discussion though. We did want to save for next time. Yeah. Um, we could hit, hit on some of that. There was an interesting, so, so one of our uh, contributors, uh, Laudza, um, published an article with me about um, essentially looking at this inflation tug of war. And it was a deeper dive into two thought leaders. I mean, really incredible people. It's very hard to find people worth paying attention to in finance, Kathy Wood. Uh, and, and Ray Dalio are certainly two of those people. Um, and what's interesting is that they actually agree on a lot, although they do disagree on some important things. So they, they, they both tend to agree that they're not particularly worried about actual CPI price inflation pressure. Um, and we dug into the statistics on that. Um, so the... I think that the, the big problem with the CPI price pressure argument is that at the end of the day, what, what's really gonna drive prices is the cost of production. And there are just so many deflationary pro, uh, forces that are gonna be driving down cost of production. Everything from the fact that people can work from anywhere, you can source labor from anywhere, people can move anywhere. Um, those are deflationary. Um, and so much more of the world is being measured in bits that can scale at no cost instead of atoms, which cannot. Um, so a lot of what ended up driving the jumps in CPI prints were really being driven by unprecedented levels of confusion, dislocations in markets, people reopening, millions of people that were in their homes coming back out and shopping and doing activities that the economy really wasn't prepared for because it had shut down. And so trying to wrap your head around how much of that is transitory, at the end of the day, you should think about cost of production. How much does it actually cost to make a meal? How much does it cost to make a car, right? Um, so none of that really changed, except that it probably went down. Um, so I'm not terribly worried about actual CPI price inflation, neither is Laudza. Um, what we ended up, deciding is that it seemed like what, what we're likely to see more is, is asset price inflation. And that gets right into the second tech bubble. It's like, okay, well, if given all this money that's sloshing around, if it's not gonna end up going towards buying more stuff, because we just don't really need more stuff. If anything, we found out we need less stuff. That's part of the reason why we're shorting a bunch of these brick and mortar retail stores is that we don't actually need more stuff. When was the last time you guys bought a suit? A while ago, actually. I don't think I'm ever going to buy another suit. Like maybe, I'm, maybe for maybe for your Zoom call, it's like a half of a suit. Yeah, half of a suit. I actually am not wearing pants right now. <laughs> you guys know that? See, I'm saving money. 
No, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so where was I going with that? Oh, yeah. Uh, speaking of which, hold on. So James asked another great question. So um, I don't know if you have time to get into the actual, like, uh, the analysis, but it goes right to your point of um, outsourcing and, and saving money in, in certain areas, I guess, um, Fiverr and Upwork stocks. What was this um, question? Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the freelance marketplace stocks, um, Fiverr, um, Upwork. Oh man, sounds good. It sounds tasty. I mean, I love that. I I so, love them. I, I absolutely love them. Um, so what are we what are we talking here? Uh, hey James, can you just join our Thursday call? And let's talk through this because I was talking through stock tips from people in the brain trust. That's why it's that's why it ended up going on for three hours. Was other folks had other ideas, and um, I really like feeling those on the fly, uh, and and it's really helpful. But there's so many securities that I, I I don't necessarily have time to like go through all of them myself. So it that's part of the reason why we want a have to have a brain trust that can help you know, watch the podcast, read the research, assess things, um, and, and then be able to have ideas that they can essentially like minimum viable um, investment thesis, right? That you can pitch and then we can socialize and figure out, okay, what's worth digging into? Um, so, so bring those to the table on Thursday and let's talk about it because I would love to buy more companies that are positioned for the personalization of our global economy. And it sounds like those kinds of companies would be really well positioned for that because that's that, it, people say gig economy, they tend to think of Uber drivers. It's much more than that. It's about taking control of your time and finding ways to leverage yourself more effectively. And these platforms that help to make that happen are really well positioned. I just need to assess them a little bit. Well, let me give you a perfect example. So my wife is an interior designer architect um, and she's extremely busy right now. Uh, obviously real estate is very busy, especially um, in the Southeast where I'm located. Um, and so she usually when she get, comes into a project uh, people don't realize but the most important thing. People think like being interior designers, like picking colors and doing fun stuff. A lot of it is measurements, um, space, space planning, especially to make sure spaces are efficient and not cluttered. So every time she starts with a new project, she has to go um, and take measurements. And there's a whole process that takes quite, quite frankly, a lot of time. And so I said, well, why don't you jump on Fiverr um, and find somebody to do a bunch of the drawings for you and she had never heard of them this was like not not her she never tried she heard of these sites but she never really did research and she was blown away by the help that she was able to find on there um and then she was able to be more efficient to your point with her time and not only that but she was able to profit from it um to the point now where she actually had um her uh web designer change a few keywords and some of her on her website and she's getting tons of inbound leads for drawings and other things that she's able to outsource through Fiverr to other very competent architects in other countries that charge one fifth or one 
tenth of what she charges. Okay. The now this looks really interesting. Okay, so what's the price sales price to sales ratio on this? What are we looking at? Which one? Uh, Fiverr. I have never looked at the stock myself. I probably should. So we're looking at 200 million, six billion. Yeah, so one of the, the statistics that I like to look at initially with something like this is the price to sales because it's one of the hardest to manipulate. Um, and you can manipulate earnings pretty easily and I, I wouldn't even call it manipulation. I mean, Amazon wasn't profitable until like a few years ago, why? Well, because basically they could just spend money uh, that they were expensing in order to grow. So they're just hiring more developers and growing their business, right? And why would you not do that? Um, it's, it's cheaper to use pre-tax money than after-tax money to, to invest in your business and grow. And that's become a lot easier with software. Um, so I don't tend to pay as much attention to price to earnings ratios, but sales is important. Uh, it's hard to fake sales. Um, I'm interested. Let's talk more uh, about this. But I, I definitely think that there's like a whole suite of companies that are positioned to benefit from the more personalized digital economy. Um, and we just haven't built out that thesis very well yet. I mean, I've been, I've been the cues, those platforms for sure. But, you know, I'd really like to get more focused on, yeah, companies like Etsy. I haven't bought it yet, but, you know, I, I really like the model. I think I saw um, eBay um, uh, did well on earnings recently. And I was thinking, oh, well, why don't I own eBay? That would have been a really good one. I think part of it was that during the pandemic, of course, everybody was like, ooh, eBay. Uh, I tend to like to buy securities when they're depressed. Um, but anyway, so uh, getting back to the, the discussion between Kathy Wood and Ray Dalio, um, so one key difference is that Ray Dalio is concerned about what impact um, this influx of bonds will have on yields. And I think that that's a really important consideration. Um, Democrats are, you know, by and large, I think feeling, uh, what's the term? I mean, they, they, the general feel that I get from Democrats is that they feel morally superior and nothing that they do can possibly go wrong. And so they're just going to go ahead and spend trillions of dollars to do all the wonderful things. And it's basically great society from LBJ. And that didn't work out so well because um, government doesn't do a good job of solving problems by and large, at least not the way that Democrats try to do it. Democrats try to do it by building bureaucracies and hiring lots of people and creating complicated programs that don't work. Um, what they should do is generally basically fix market mechanisms. You could solve all these issues with climate change by taxing carbon. You don't have to hire more people. You don't have to build out green new deals. You don't have to do all these fancy programs and all of that crap. All you have to do is tax carbon, but they don't wanna do that because it looks better on their resumes if they do the, the things the way they do, which is spend you know 
trillions of dollars and then you know have spending all that money on certain programs and they can say oh look what we did we planted like this forest and they could take pictures it's really nice um so they're going to spend all this money and it's not going to be spent very well um because they're not actually solving the problem which is a market pricing problem with carbon um and then various other programs uh and so all this is going to end up flooding into the bond market and somebody's going to have to buy it now so far there have been enough stupid people out there to buy all these bonds and you know when you're coming on like a the end of a 40-year bear uh, bull market in bonds like entire institutions and mechanisms um things that are on autopilot like these target retirement funds are just going to keep plowing money into these bonds and so until you actually get true persistent inflationary pressure to pop this bubble the dumb money flying into bonds will continue to mitigate the stupid spending from government um i don't know how long that's going to go i think democrats are really trying hard to push that and test that thesis i think that basically ray dalio and larry summers who did a talk on this a couple weeks ago are spot on that we're basically looking at a 1965 to 1969 scenario with this great society and the government can fix everything um i don't know how long that goes uh say, how, how does that end i mean that ends that ends with with the correlation regime change that's why we're shorting all these uh corporate bonds that's why it doesn't matter if apple has a low credit risk it's you know the shit's going to blow up and when it does i was talking to rishi earlier like it's going to hit everything cuz like basically all of financial assets are being priced higher and higher because of all the money printing right yep. and so the question becomes you know when does the expected future return from financial assets broadly get close enough to zero or even even go negative when basically we we reach a tipping point where we start to look at like a you know potential five year bear market and financial assets broadly and it's coming but these things happen they build over time um part of the reason why we're so concentrated in disruptive technology is because these areas have got so badly hammered already that were were protected to some degree against that and I'm not really worried about that. You look at the actual valuations of these companies given their growth rates and what they're doing, I actually consider them to be just cheap on the fundamentals irregardless of where rates are. So I'm not worried about it now. I'm worried about it 2-3 years from now. You know, where do these things go? We're going to be we're going to be having a very if I'm right, we're going to be having a very different discussion. a year from now, 2 years from now, and it's basically going to be bubble watch. You know, every month we're going to be doing another bubble watch. Watch this. Get ready Rishi for your next uh, you know, promo video after this starts happening. We're going to this is you going in and being like, "Hey, Intuit Econ was putting this stuff out here uh, you know, uh late summer 2020 uh 2021. This is what we're coming at, right? Is bubble watch because riding a bubble is freaking scary, but you can make a ton of money. It's a question of when do we hit that tipping point? That's going to be interesting. But I don't yeah, I'm not really worried about it right now. Um that's kind of the point of that article is is um there's just so many deflationary pressures um and there's just so much dumb money that continues to fly into bonds 
that the inflation scare that's ultimately going to end up crashing this uh, just probably isn't a concern immediately. Well, we could be wrong. Yeah. That's why we're shorting bonds. <laughs> if we're wrong, we want to have like a giant short position on these bonds. This is. I mean, I tend to. I tend to agree just because of what's going on. I mean, for many reasons, but I think um, with what's happening with COVID, um, I think that it's only going to increase. I don't know about increase the printing, but I think it's going to keep the printing press warm. Keep that. Why would they not? It's not like I have something against Democrats. It, it's it's not about Democrats or Republicans. It's it's human beings. Human beings are going to act based on incentives. What's the incentive of people that are in power? Uh, political people in power. You know what what if they can spend more money to make their constituency happy, and 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 print a bunch of money to essentially buy votes and look good. They're going to do it. And it doesn't matter yeah. if they're Democrats or Republicans. They're all going to do it until the actual electorate, electorate, you know, the electorate will get the government that they deserve. And the electorate doesn't care about inflation and fiscal discipline. So, of course, the politicians don't care. And increasingly, central banks don't care either. It's like, okay. Well, that'll happen. That'll work. That'll work fine until it doesn't work, and it doesn't. It stops working when people stop caring, and they stopped caring in 1965, with LBJ, and the reactions of Democrats then was very similar to what it is now. You know, basically Trump and the things that he was doing, it, it was horrific. He's a horrible human being. It's a black eye on Amer on America, and we're coming out of that. But the kind of pain that people felt uh, in the Democratic Party was similar to after JFK died. At least, you know, to the best I can ascertain from reading tons of history and trying to delve into the minds of people back then, people were suffering and they really wanted to latch on to some kind of broader vision of how government could help to, you know, help to, to, to move America forward. But government doesn't do that very well. Freedom does that really well. Um, and so we learned that lesson, but most of the people that learned that lesson aren't alive anymore. So we're going to have to learn it again at some point. That will be interesting. Well, do we have any other questions or thoughts from folks, or did I, did I cover all the material? that we were looking at here. I know there's a lot of short positions there. Uh, the short positions are gonna change too. There's, a, there's actually like a much longer list of short positions. We're just basically building up for this. Last key point about the short position, this is really just us playing softball to get ready. It's like, you wanna have a short portfolio that ideally you can hold for long periods of time that is structured in a way that won't go up but probably won't go down until the shit hits the fan and it's really hard to know where the shit's going to come from it's just really hard to time markets generally you don't get something as easy as covid covid was easy it's like so easy to graph a highly contagious virus and growth rates over time that's not generally where risk comes from. A big reason why we had our oil 
and corporate bond shorts, and we're shorting Ford and GM and a bunch of these, these oil companies going into COVID, we already had some of those short positions on. Why? Because of the Tesla trade. We already knew these companies were in trouble, right? We thought it was going to come from solar, and we knew that there was weakness in the bond market, and we knew that yields were already low for these corporate bonds. So it was, how do you structure a short portfolio so that it can be there as an insurance policy against the unknown? And there's a ton of unknown. And as good as we've been on a lot of these market calls, it's really hard to market time. So what you really want is to be able to have that there to help mitigate these risks because they're everywhere. These risks are everywhere. And we are in untreaded waters. We will always be. The future is always uncertain. So Janaid makes a fair point. He has a fair concern. How exactly are you able to track all 30 of the stocks that you're shorting right now? Because it is quite a bit of information to process. Yeah, okay. So we're not experts in these companies. We're not, we're not shorting these companies uh, based on the same kind of thesis that you might see from famous short sellers that say, look into a company and they do like a deep dive analysis, learn everything they can about it, publish some 50 page report and say, look, we've done all the analysis. This company is overvalued. That's not what we're doing. We are looking at a basket of securities that relate to uh, themes that we understand really well. Transportation disruption is something we've done a ton of research on. We've got more articles coming out to explain why. Um, the solar revolution, electrification, the fact that all these car companies are moving into EVs thinking that they're going to like make money, but they're not. They're going to have depressed margins because these cars are simpler. 10% of the moving parts of ICE vehicles moving to, you know, basically transportation as a service. And, you know, it's essentially cannibalizing their own business and increasingly commoditizing what they do. Um, uh, looking at just broadly, the, the demand for oil has gotten crushed. Um, people know that they don't need to, to move around as much. People are going to be driving less. They are going to be flying less. Um, and we are having exponential growth in electric vehicles, and yet oil prices now are higher than they were before COVID. This is not rocket science. Um, but we don't need to know all the details of every company. We, did, we would if we had highly concentrated positions in one short, but we're not. We're trying to capture these broad themes across multiple stocks that have sensitivity to that theme. And we're also trying to time it with the market generally. So um, we were waiting for uh, a period post the reopening for the algo efficient markets to price in a bunch of people running back out there and starting to spend money. And finally going on that car trip, driving around all over the place and people flying and you know desperate to get out. But there are gonna be permanent changes in behavior and we're betting that a lot of those algos are just not realizing that they basically priced in a bunch of pent up demand that's not gonna persist. Um, so we're not experts in these companies. Um, we don't pretend to be, uh, but we think we know what we're doing with the themes. Fair enough. Good question. 
I'd like to be experts in all the companies. That'd be cool. As the brain trust grows, I think it'd be really neat to have more folks that can focus in and try to like delve deeper into some of this. Um, I think it'd be great, but we just don't, we're not there yet. Coming months, come, come join us. This is gonna be the place to be. We're gonna have a lot of fun. All right, gentlemen, let's close up shop. Until next time, uh, uh, nothing that we say or write should be interpreted as investing advice. Um, please be very careful with what you do with your money. If you like what we do, um, please go to intuitecon.com. Um, you can subscribe. We have a bunch of uh, material that we put out there for subscribers. Um, we also have some good stuff for just the general public. Um, and if you do stock research, you're interested in becoming a better investor, um, consider joining our brain trust. You don't have to be an expert, but you do have to be very curious and want to learn um, and also confident enough to take criticism and um, focus more on learning from mistakes uh, than, uh, than just talking about all your winners. So that's who we're looking for. You can be from anywhere. Um, and we do pay folks that are, that are publishing there based on um, basically the subscriber fees that we get. Um, we're paying those out to uh, contributors based on the traffic that, that they were driving over there. So this is just a way for us to say thank you to um, our contributors. So that said, um, thank you very much and uh, have a good night. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you for your talk. Bye.